If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Acts 21. We're going to be finishing off chapter 21 today. Uh, we started it last week, and last week we looked at the idea of uh, following God's will no matter what. That God calls us and gives us a spirit-driven determination to follow his will. And sometimes the world and other well-meaning brothers and sisters in the Lord come against God's will. And not maliciously, but through a human emotion, through human understanding, and try to deter you from following God's will. And we kind of pulled on that thread a little bit. And how Paul was called to follow God's will, and God used him uh, to do so. And now, we this week... We're going to look at some of those prophecies and warnings that those other Christians were giving Paul and how they're becoming fulfilled before his eyes. But before we talk about that, we're going to look at this interesting dilemma that Paul is in. I, I call it a moral dilemma, but I like rather to use the word gospel dilemma. Paul is seeming in a gospel dilemma, and the greatest theologians on this subject are divided. I've read every respectable theologian I could think of on this subject, and they are divided. And more are falling on the, the side that Paul was probably made a judgment error here. He probably made a mistake here, and that's okay. It's okay for the apostle to make a mistake. He's not God, right? Uh, he's just like us, a human. And then there are many others who think that the apostle Paul was not in the wrong, and they also make good um, uh, reasoning for that. But we'll explore that more in detail as we get to those verses. But for now, what I will say to kind of set the stage is that we all know that Paul lived, he fought, and died with an abiding consciousness that he was doing everything unto God's glory and his will. So whether you and I, at the end of today's sermon, land on Paul being wrong or Paul being right, or if we end up on different sides and disagree, which you're allowed to do, that's okay. Uh, we must all admit collectively in this room that Paul was a devoted man to God and all his actions that he did filtered through his devotion for Christ and his commitment to see the gospel and God's kingdom furthered throughout the world. Paul was a man who was willing to take the risk, even if that risk meant a bad judgment call at some points. So with all that in mind, let's go to scripture today. We see in verses uh, 17 to about 20a, Paul's reception in Jerusalem. Let's read together verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went, uh, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, he related one by one all the things that God has done among the Gentiles and through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. So verses 17 to 18 show us that Paul and his companions were welcomed. And after their warm welcome, they went into the elder's house, into James' house with all the elders. And the chief elder was James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, just a reminder for you. He's considered by church fathers some of the most pious men to ever walk after Christ. Obviously, his knees were calloused because he prayed so much. And he was on his knees to pray that he started to form calluses. He was a godly, godly man. And we see Paul do two things in this meeting. 
with the elders. First, he shared the amazing stories of what had taken place on Paul's third missionary journey to the Gentiles. And then he even brought two uh, Gentile disciples, converts with him as examples. We'll read about that in just a few verses. As an example of the gospel witness that is going on in these Gentile nations. And second, and it's not mentioned here, but we know from other verses, he also produced an offering that he's been collecting collectively from all the Gentile churches, and he gave this to the mother church as uh, as a sign of solidarity, as to help the poor and the needy in Jerusalem, and of course, further their mission. And delivering this gift was Paul's chief motivation to come to Jerusalem before heading to Rome. And though he feared it would be rejected, he feared that the mother church wouldn't want the offering. You can read about that in Romans 15, 21 to 31, or sorry, 25 to 31, because of the rising Jewish nationalism and the increasing number of legalistic Christians, which we'll be reading about in just a few verses. And Paul hoped that this love offering would be a sign of solidarity, unity between the Jewish Gentile believers and or between the Jews and the Gentile believers. And to all of this, these elders rejoiced. And there was probably, it's speculated, there's probably 70 elders gathered here after the Jewish customs to have 70 elders. So they, there's probably 70 men in this room rejoicing and celebrating God for what Paul has done. And this is amazing because prior to Paul's missionary journeys, the Jews did not consider the possibility of these Gentiles to be part of God's kingdom. But now these Jewish leaders praise God for the extent of his salvation and his work. Only the gospel can bridge the ethnic divide which existed between Jews and Gentile. And we can only confess that only the gospel can tear down our modern dividing walls, which exist in our own lands today. Be it social divides, ethnic divides, socioeconomic divides, the gospel can and the gospel will tear down those divides. As I've been moving towards our series in revival, when you study the past awakenings in America and in the, in, in, in across seas in Europe, it's amazing when you see the social and racial divides start to crumble before the gospel and men and women alike, men and women alike from all different nations and nationalities come and worship God under one tongue. It's amazing. And we actually see this a lot happening when the gospel goes forth. So everything was going well, and the elders were excited. They're glorifying God. And Paul must have just been a little bit caught off guard when the elders informed him that there was an issue, and then they gave him a suggestion. Let's read, picking up in verse 20, which says, and when they heard it, they glorified God and said to him, you see, brothers, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. So quickly pick up on that. We're talking about Jewish Christians here, not still Jews. They're Jewish Christians. And they have all been told about you that you teach the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What, uh, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have 
Come, do therefore what we com- uh, uh, do. Therefore, what we tell you: we have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them, and pay their expenses, so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourselves live in observance of the law. But for the Gentiles who ha- uh, here have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And that's just a connection to the Jerusalem Council's ruling that we preached about a few well, months now ago. But what a reversal from the elders. They go from quickly glorifying God and praising his name to moving to addressing the elephant that was in the room. They have been hearing some rumors for probably weeks or months at this point being spread about Paul and his teaching that the Jews should not follow the law at all. And what they were doing, it was rumors. They were misinterpreting Paul's message that salvation is found in Jesus. Freedom is found in Jesus and not the law. But Paul never taught that the law doesn't have a purpose. That would be a misunderstanding of Paul. And the people started to believe that Paul was an antinomius. And antinomianism is the belief that there is no purpose for the law, that they are anti-law and the law should be abolished. So what antinomianism is, it's a big word, but it's the opposite of legalist. And we all kind of know the word legalist. These legalists are who follow the law, find their salvation in the law, their identity in the law, and they work for their salvation. Antinomianism is the other extreme. Well, there's no law. God doesn't care what I do. And this is what Paul is being accused of. And the elders are concerned about what will happen when these other zealous Jewish Christians, not just the Jewish nation, but these Jewish Christians will do once they hear Paul is in town. They were concerned that this misinformation of Paul's message could lead to a, to a crack in the already fragile bond between Jews and Gentiles. And to add more pressure to this already tense situation, Paul brought with him Gentile converts who he was housing with and living with and sharing food with, which was a major no-no for the Jews of this time. And even Christian Jews at this time were still struggling with this concept. And to add another layer of pressure, and we'll read about these assassins just in a few verses, but there are these Jewish assassins around at this time. You could call them what they are. They're terrorists. They're radicalized Jews who are killing other Jews if they have any type of sympathy for Gentiles. So if they see you have a Gentile in your house, they kill you. It's kind of like radical Islam today. Not all Islamic people are going to, you know, kill you or, or be radicalized, but there are groups that are radicalized. And there were radicalized Jews in this day that were killing other Jews. So you can understand these elders. They're worried. They're feeling the pressure. We got these crazy guys going around killing people for not following the law of God. And now you're here and we identify with you. And you're teaching, evidently, maybe on rumor, that Jewish people should forsake the law of God, forsake Moses, and all of that. And they're like, you're going to get a lot of people killed. So the mother church is slow at accepting Gentiles. We've been seeing this throughout all the book of Acts. She found it difficult with the testimony of the apostle Peter and the conversion of Cornelius. The mother church was suspicious of the work among the Samaritans. At the council of Jerusalem, she did not readily give freedom to the Gentile believers 
in their church still put restraint on them, but bent over backwards in comparison to accept any Jew, especially Jews who still had a misunderstanding of God's law and what it means to be fulfilled in Christ. And we see that clearly by verse 20, that it's talking about their zeal for the law. They are failing their congregation. Those elders are failing their congregation. That's what we're seeing. They're not catechizing properly. They're not discipling properly. And they're not snuffing out rumors and standing up to the mob. They are failing their congregation and they are failing Paul. Let's just be real, right? I'm not being rude. We're just calling what it is. So So with this being the member's primary belief, It made the mother church a compromising, prejudiced church and her sins of lying, gossip, and spineless accommodation eventuated in Paul's rejection. It it sure did. And the elder's suggestion was questionable, but it was also predictable. And we read about that in verse 23 to 25, which uh, which says, Do therefore what we tell you, uh, that, uh, that the men who are under a vow, these, these guys who are under this vow are, are Nazarite vows. We've already kind of read this, so I'm just going to flesh it out. And, and this Nazarite vow is a vow to abstain from meat and wine and not cut their hair for 30 days. Paul would have had to undergo a seven-day ritual of purification. And not only that, he would have to pay for three animal offerings for each man. Three animal offerings for each man, including his own. Plus, on top of that, cereal offerings and drink offerings. This was an expensive tab that the church was asking Paul to pick up out of his own pocket. It seems, and most scholars agree, that there was an exchange of favors going on here. The the mother church accepted the report from Paul. They accepted the money from Paul as a sign of solidarity and unity and backing their man, their missionary. And now... It's like the mother church is saying, hey, you, we scratched your back. Can you scratch our back for a moment, right? Can, for the sake of unity, they're asking Paul to identify with the Jews, to openly identify himself with this nation. They were not asking Paul, let's be clear, to compromise his Gentile ministry, which in verse 25, they kind of make that clear by reminding them of the liberties that they did extend through the Jerusalem council to the Gentiles. But what they were trying to do was portray Paul as a more scrupulous Jew than he actually was. This was a political move. And politics is not just a problem in churches today. It was a problem in churches back then as well. And they were trying to make a political move, which in my opinion, my humble opinion, was wrong of them. But what we see is Paul being a man of God in his submission to these elders' suggestion in verse 26, which says, And then Paul took the men... The next day, he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled. The offering presented for each one of them. So the question is that we have to wrestle with, was Paul sinning by doing this? Was Paul in error by doing this? And many scholars, as I've said, have concluded that he's wrong, and many have concluded that he is right. I would say the more lean to the wrong than the right. And I wrestled with this the whole week. I read a lot, but I don't just accept it because it's in a book. I've wrestled with this, and I'll give you my conclusion. I land somewhere in the middle. And you're welcome to disagree with me, but here are my observations why I land there. Whether Paul was wise to follow this counsel, maybe doubt it. 
But I think we can't fairly charge Paul with compromising his gospel because of his own principles, because he was acting in strict accordance with his own missionary policy. And if you remember, his missionary policy is stated in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 22, which says, for, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more men. To the Jews, what did he become? In order to win Jews. To, under, to those under the law, I became as one as what? Under the law. Although myself, I was not under the law. That I might win those under the law. He goes on. To those outside of the law, I became as what? Yeah, good job. You guys are on the queue today. Must be that breakfast earlier. That I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak. That I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that I might win them, but that I might see some more saved. But in contrast to this policy, and this is where my issues arise, because we want to be biblical in our approach, when you read the whole Bible, Paul does start to seem a little bit inconsistent with other writings that he has wrote. And in Galatians, which was written before this chapter in Acts, uh, uh, this event, Paul in Galatians in chapter 1, 6 to 9, he scolds the Galatians for how quickly Christ for another gospel, that, that they moved from Christ to another gospel, a false gospel. And he even says, if anyone among you rises up and starts teaching a false gospel, may they be an anathema. May they be cursed. And then we also read in Galatians where Paul talks about the time when he confronted the apostle Peter to his face because Peter, Peter was sitting with Gentiles, a Jewish party comes in and Peter goes, well, I don't want to be identified with the Gentiles anymore. And he goes, sits with the Jews. And Paul confronts him saying, stop living a double standard. Essentially, I'm paraphrasing. So when you look at all this, we rightly can go, well, it seems strange for Paul, the champion of freedom, the, the champion of grace to willfully put himself back under the bondage of the law. So the question remains, which view is correct? And this is where I stand. If Paul was not in error, and let me be clear, that's a big if, then he was probably dangerously close to it. Did Paul cross the line? Or did he just become really close and flirt with the line? And that's where I kind of land, somewhere in the middle. He came dangerously close to compromising, to error here. And here's why I think Paul took this advice, why Paul made this bad judgment call to follow the elders' advice. And it was to Paul's credit. It's because Paul loved the Jewish nation. Romans 9, 1 to 3 even talks about Paul willing to be damned if it means that his Jewish brethren would be saved. He wanted to see Jews come to Christ so bad and he held them in such high regard and place in his life that this is where the problem came. At times, we can, when we hold people in, 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 in groups in such high esteem and high regard, it can cause blind spots in our thinking. And we start acting just to reach those people and we might make some bad judgment calls along the way because we are not thinking through our decisions fully because we're blinded by our love for those people. And he also did this because Paul yearned, it's twofold, he also yearned for solidarity between the Jewish and Gentile churches. They, that they were not unified, they were disunified, and it's sad because disunity is still a major problem in our churches today. There was a story, and it's a true story, of two local congregations here in Alberta, of a small community, I won't name the community, 
And they, uh, they, they were like a lot of other small town churches where there's like 600 churches and they all have 20 people. And, uh, and it just kind of, you're like, what's going on here? And so anyways, this was a smaller town, two churches, both very small congregations and struggling. So they said, well, why don't we just come together? And why don't we make a bigger congregation, a more effective congregation? And through those talks, everything was going well until they got down to the, to the understanding of how would they pray the Lord's Prayer? Well, one group wanted them to pray, forgive us of our trespasses. And the other group wanted to uh, pray, uh, forgive us of our debts. And they split over that. Something so small, something so minuscule. And it's humorous to think about, but it's also sad because it's childish behavior. And it's childish behavior that often divides a church and it divides it quickly. And Paul saw how useless this division was. He was just thinking if everyone in Christ could just understand their freedoms in Christ, the church would be far better off. His heart was in sync with Jesus' high priestly prayer of unity, that his body would be unified, which would be an evangelistic uh, enterprise to the world through their unity. Paul had a massive vision for solidarity. A church of Jews and Gentiles together taking the world by storm for Jesus. Not giving in to legalism like the Judaizers. But yet Paul went along with the elders in their compromising suggestion. Why? Because he longed for his lost nation more than his own life. He longed for the evangelistic power that would be manifest through a church exhibiting unity in Christ more than his own life. So what can we as a modern day church learn from Paul's experience? The first thing we can learn is in our moments of highest spiritual motivation, we need to especially beware of error or bad judgment. Meaning, don't let our love for people, our desire to see them saved, cloud our judgment. We see churches who sell, up, sell out to the seeker-friendly model. They, they lessen their prayer. They take down their crosses. They take down their religious symbols. They do all these things, and they compromise to the culture because they are slaved to wanting to have a good name in their community no matter what. So come on, come have Jesus light. There's some Kool-Aid that you can drink rather than the blood of Jesus. And if you're alive in the 60s, you might get that reference, but there we go. (laughs) So let's be sensible. Let's be reasonable. Seeking the Lord on what's best. Second, maybe, there we go. Second, we can be pressured towards questionable actions by the sins of of others. If the Jerusalem church, as I said, just defended Paul from the beginning and were catechizing and discipling their converts properly, such pressures would never have come upon Paul. And we too live in a fallen world where our own sins and the sins of others around us oftentimes make it dis- difficult to know what is right. And we need to, as a body of believers, be gracious to those who make what we think are mistaken decisions or wrong decisions because we need to not just consider their actions. I think that's our problem is that we just are reactive more than anything. We see somebody's actions and we judge them on their actions rather than going to them and trying to find out their motivation. Why did that lady steal bread? Well, maybe she has kids at home who she can't afford to feed. 
What's the motivation? It doesn't make the sin right necessarily, but we need to know their motivations. And Paul may have erred in this situation, which I think he may have, but it wasn't an error of judgment. It would have been an error of heart. Or sorry, it would have been an error of judgment. I said that backwards. (laughs) And not an error of heart because his motives were pure. He wasn't being malicious. He wanted to see the Jewish nation saved. Third, we need, like Paul, to have hearts that because of passion for souls and for God's glory are willing to run the risk of unwise decisions. Now, let me flesh that out. This isn't a contradiction of my first points. What this is saying is some hearts never risk anything. They don't risk anything. They take no risk. They kind of hold on to the balance beam their whole life and never try to walk. They're never running the risk. They strive neither for sin or for sainthood. They desire a temperate free zone of the storms of sin and from the tempest that accompanies a life of service. So if you want to avoid rejection, well, just never burn for the souls of others. Never put yourself out there to others. Just lock yourself away in your house. Never want to be criticized? Well, never suggest a plan. Never put an idea out there. Never come to a a leadership meeting and say, hey, I think this is how we might be able to reach the lost. Never do that. Are you afraid to give bad advice? Well, just never give counsel again to anyone going through hardship in life. And you will live this boring, plain, free zone life that's holding on to the balance beam and doing nothing for the kingdom of God. We should pray to have hearts like Paul, who's willing to run the risk of maybe making a few unwise decisions for the sake of the souls of others. But moving forward in our verses today, we see that these prophecies and the warnings from others and the Holy Spirit began to come to pass. Let's pick up our reading in verse 27, which says, When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, laid his hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and have defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed... I want you to pick up on this. They supposed uh, that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then the city was stirred up and the people ran together and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. It was just complete mayhem, complete pandemonium. The crowd was out of control and the people, most of them probably didn't even know why they were upset. Just everybody else was amped up. So they shot some Red Bull and started running with them. And they were angry and like, yeah, let's kill this guy. And what's interesting is it wasn't started by the Jews that lived in Israel. It was started by the Jews that Paul has been encountering time and time again on his missionary journey. Most think it's the Ephesian Jews where he had those big spats and then they kind of followed him around trying to get him killed from there. And they finally found him. You can just see it. They see him. The crowds depart. Like, it's Paul. We got him. It's our time. Let's get this guy. He's not getting away from us. So they started fabricating the truth. 
They made grand assumptions about Paul that stirred up the crowd, that he had no regard for the law or Moses, and that he's defiled the temple. And that word defiled can actually be translated as to make a holy place common, that they have no reverence. It's just a common old, like a library, you just walk in, who cares? They made it common. And so they're saying he's defiled this holy place of God. And they knew that the words that they were saying carried the death sentence. They knew what they were doing. They knew what they were saying, just like the high priests and the Sadducees and the, and the Pharisees knew what they were saying about Jesus, our Messiah. They knew how to get a man killed. And we too, we fall into the same sin of Jews. We begin to fabricate lies. We begin to see things and we begin to react and make quick judgment calls. And we start to cause tension and friction for no reason. So here's the warning for us that we see played out in this mob. So many times we are quick to, uh, to react rather than to respond. And there's a big difference between these two. Reaction generally happens immediately without thinking. You just kind of react and it normally hurts and causes pains. Uh, uh, responding taps the brakes. It begins to slow down and gather more intel so that we know we can respond accurately. So maybe this plays out in your house like this. You see your spouse do something, they say something, they leave that dish in the dishwasher the wrong way again, and you just jump to conclusions. You always do this because you don't love me, you know, and you just, it goes downhill from there, and there's friction in the marriage for no reason. Maybe this could be with your kids or with your church. You just react, and you start causing pain all around you. And I call this the clickbait of the enemy. All of us, you know, even if we're not super tech savvy, we've probably been on Facebook or some type of social media and you come across these articles and it's like the first golden retriever in space. And you're like, well, what? And you click on that and it's, <laughs> and it's just, uh, now you guys know what I look up. And, uh, <laughs> and it's just a dog in a Halloween costume of an astronaut. And you're like, oh, I just wasted five minutes of my life. And you have to like read through the whole story. Uh, and uh, so this is clickbait. And the enemy loves to use clickbait in our lives. We see something, we hear something and we react to it. We take the bait, we click it. And all of a sudden, these people we love, these people that we hold in high esteem, we begin to treat as they're the enemies. We begin to hurt them. But they're not the enemy. You and I have an enemy and that's not your spouse. That's not your kids. It's not the elders or the leadership of this church. It's not even your church family or the person sitting next to you or maybe intentionally across the room from you. It's the devil, and his name is Satan. And we have this common enemy together, and we need to beware and be guarded of our tendency to react, to jump to conclusions where we quickly might consider each other as a church enemies. Because this is not the way that God has designed us to operate. So in all of life, in all of ministry, in everything we do, we must be on guard. And this could be when you're battling your own thoughts when you're alone. Or this could also be like we'll see in the next verses, when the mobs of our day rise up and try to influence our reactions and feelings towards people. Let's read verses 31 to 36, which says, And as they were seeking to kill him, 
Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they have saw, and when they saw the tribune and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he inquired who was, uh, uh, who, uh, who he was and what he has done. And some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some the other. And he could not learn the facts because of the uproar. So he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed crying away from him, away with him. So this is the power of gossip, slander, and continual criticism of other people on full display. And sadly, the mother church, as I've been saying, has failed Paul by not silencing this earlier. And the principle that we can pull from this for our modern day selves and apply to our church is that gossip is cancer to our unity. Slander is cancer to our unity. Constant criticism of other volunteers, of other servants in our church is cancer to our unity. Our verses today is talking about the hate that the Jews had for Paul, but what we can pull from it for our church today is that when we begin to slander another person, when we begin to spread gossip about another person, when we begin to just nitpick at the way somebody is serving all the time, we begin to deteriorate and dissolve the unity of our church. And it erodes and it destroys us. It's a cancer that we need to be aware of and we need to deal with it. And if it doesn't get dealt with, it will destroy a church. And when it's identified to a group of people or even an individual, that person must be dealt with. And if they fail to conform, then they must be removed for the sake of the purity of our church. When we begin to poison the well with gossip and slander, we are destroying not just the person we're slandering, not just our church, but your own reputation as well. Gossip and rumors cause division. And like we see at the end of verse 31, all it leaves us with is confusion. Gossip and slander and constant criticism will split a church so fast that everyone on both sides will be left so confused, angry and hurt at each other and not even realize why. So let's together, Fellowship Baptist Church, rid ourselves of such practices for the glory of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. So we see Paul arrested. We see him badly beaten by this mob to the point where he can't even walk up the stairs. And then he has this interesting conversation with the tribune as I close. Verse 37 to 40, he says, As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian that who recently stirred up the revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city, and I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he was given permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. 
So this shows us just how much confusion was going on. Everyone was spreading rumors. Like there was even rumors going around in the Roman ranks about who this guy, this is clearly that crazy Egyptian that brought all the assassins here. There's a huge revolt just not long before this. Tons of people died and they, a ton of them escaped and they've been looking for them ever since. And like, this is our guy. This is clearly him. And then they were caught off guard when he started speaking Greek, and he's like, oh, this is clearly not the Egyptian that led the revolt. But what has is, what is caused Paul, a bleeding, broken apostle, to ask for permission to speak? And it was nothing else than a swelling passion for his people. The desire to even be in an anathema, accursed for their sake, that they might know Christ. They just beat him senseless. And he's still standing before them going, I love them. I want to see them know Jesus. I'm not saying that we let people trample on us or beat us. But I think the principle we can learn from this is when people do trample on us and do hurt us, that we need to be moved to the same passion to see them forgiven by Christ and loved by their heavenly father. Amen. So even though they just beat him and could feel their hate and he could feel their hate and their stare. He was moved to love by his people. Would you join me in prayer? Oh God, our Father, our Lord, our Savior, as we seek to know your will, we sometimes are not sure which way to go or what action to take. Please help us not to be so afraid of making a wrong decision that we sit on the sidelines nor to be over, uh, over sure of ourselves and take a wrong turn or cause brothers or sisters in Christ to do so. May we ever be moved with a burning love for others that will not allow us to hoard the gospel. Whether convenient or costly, may we take full advantage of the opportunities to voice the good news and the new life in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You may stand and worship with us.